Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 116. Remember at about 2018, 2019, the Brewers were coming off of an NLCS run and Christian Yelich was the MVP. The Packers were getting set for an NFC Championship run. Aaron Rodgers going to win an MVP or two in the next few years. The Bucks were on the rise, ready for an Eastern Conference Finals trip. The Badgers were knocking on the door of another Rose Bowl. MVPs across the board. Those were halcyon days, weren't they? We're in a different world right now. Packers lose. An encouraging loss. There are no moral victories, but are there? The Badgers didn't have a moral victory of any kind on Saturday, getting beat down at home by Northwestern in front of, what, 70% full or 60% full Camp Randall. The Bucks defense has some holes that were exposed again in Orlando in a loss to the Magic on Saturday. And to top it all off, we get a Craig Council introductory press conference with the Chicago Cubs today. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's hard. Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin, record-breaking run! Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit to center! Here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win! Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's a and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive gets inside, leads in, backed away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, and a pinnacle ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there, and they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, I don't know how uplifting this podcast is going to be. Hey, we went 5-0-1 gambling. We went 5-0-1 gambling. We had a tremendous gambling week on the Strange Brew podcast. That puts us at what now? 31-23-2? That's pretty damn good. So we have that. We got that going for us, which is nice. Otherwise, an ugly sports weekend in the state of Wisconsin. Do you want to start with the Packers? Because I don't feel too bad about that Packer loss. I put on my Facebook page at the end of the game yesterday that that actually did remind me of a 2008 loss. And I know we've been over this on the podcast many times. In several ways, it is unfair to compare those two teams The 2008 team was coming off of an NFC Championship game run, had a veteran offensive line, had some veteran parts at wide receiver and running back. Things were set up better that year, and they still went 6-10. This year's team is coming off of an 8-9 year, a shoddy offensive line, an extremely young wide receiver room. It's tough to compare those two teams, but they will inextricably be linked forever because it was the last time a Hall of Fame quarterback handed the baton off to the next up-and-coming quarterback. When Favre reluctantly, still clutching onto that baton, gave it to Aaron Rodgers. And now we're in the year where Rodgers passes it off to Jordan Love. Those two seasons, fair or not, will always be connected. The 2008 season featured a lot of games like yesterday, where the Packers played competitively against a decent team, in this case on the road in a difficult environment, and they fought. 
They were down early, 17-7. to We'll get into the X's and O's here, but just in general, they were down. Then they come back. They get a 19-17 to lead, a lot like 2008 where they'd get down early and come back and grab a lead. Then a lot like 2008, the defense gave that lead back. And a lot like 2008, this team had a chance, several opportunities late to get back in front. Couldn't capitalize, had drives go deep into Pittsburgh territory, and then came up short on a couple of Jordan Love interceptions, which we'll also talk a little bit more in depth about here coming up in a minute or two. There were also several small things that just went haywire. Some the Packers could control and some they could not control. One thing they could control is, hey, maybe Josiah DeGuara blocks anybody on an extra point. That's a novel idea. Rich Pisaccia continues to be the highest-paid special teams coach in the entire NFL, and the special teams continue to be an abject disaster more often than not with plays like that. They showed the replay. That looked like 2019. That looked like the 2019 or 2020 or 2021 special teams. Josiah DeGuara did not block a soul. He just let somebody go right past him. That was like the field goal block of Mason Crosby in the 2021 NFC Divisional Round Playoffs against the Niners. I forget who it was that was on the edge in that game. Also didn't block anybody, and a field goal got blocked in that game. This time an extra point. That cost them dearly because the two drives that Jordan Love had late in the game easily were in field goal range, and if the game was 23-20 like it should have been, had DeGuara even touched somebody on the edge, then you're talking about at least a tie game, and maybe you get back-to-back field goals and win the game. A small thing like that that you can control. Something you cannot control is this officiating crew somehow, some way, reviewing that lateral call and still not getting it right on the Kenny Pickett toss behind the line of scrimmage. Was that late second quarter? It looked in real time like it was a lateral and a fumble and a Packer recovery. It looked on replay like it was a lateral and a fumble and a Packer recovery. And... I don't know how it happened where they look at that and the officials in New York look at that and then even Gene Steratore, that mop, he comes on after the ruling and says, well, yeah, then maybe they did. Maybe it was a forward pass. Gene, stop being a stooge for the NFL officiating crew and actually give us some real information. It was so obvious to anybody that that was a lateral, and at minimum, the Packers should have had the ball at the Steelers' five-yard line, and in reality, that should have been a Packer touchdown. Rashawn Gary had a clear recovery and a leap into the end zone. Do you think that would have changed the outcome of this game? It's hard to figure out what direction it goes. Does everything play out exactly the same if you score a touchdown there? Probably not. Feels pretty likely the Packers are in a better spot to win, though, if they get the fumble recovery touchdown that they should have gotten. That's a small thing that they could not control. A lot of that stuff happened in 2008, too. Overall, I thought there were things to be encouraged about. The offensive line played better. T.J. Watt was not this massive disruptive force. He made some plays, but he didn't dominate the game the way that Aiden Hutchinson did in the Lions matchup. Or what was the guy in Vegas who was just a menace? Max Crosby? Given what we've seen from this offensive line, and especially in those games, T.J. Watt is better than, right now, Aiden Hutchinson. He's a Hall of Famer. He's better than Aiden Hutchinson. He's better than Max Crosby. You figured he could have at least done something similar to what Crosby did and what Hutchinson did to that Packer offensive line, and he really didn't. That's probably as good as the offensive line has pass-blocked the entirety of the year. You had Jordan Love make some throws. I mean, you want to jump into the Jordan Love conversation? He looked good. That's maybe his best game. I know the stats aren't going to bear that out, and I know that's the conversation for the Jordan Love haters, 
The people that don't like Love that have determined already that he is not the guy. I am convinced at this point that Jordan Love is a Rorschach test. It depends on what your perspective is. Every single throw for a certain group of fans is not good enough. Even if it in, even if it results in a touchdown, it's not good enough. And for another group of fans that are optimistic, I would put myself in this group and hoping that he gets better and continues to show progress. We're not sure what he's going to be. No one's saying he's good. No one's saying he's a Hall of Fame quarterback. No one's even saying he's a Pro Bowl quarterback. There's a group of fans that I belong to, though, that are just hoping to see progress every week. And we did see that on Sunday. If you don't see that, then you don't have eyes. We saw progress on Sunday. That's that group of fans, but it's a Rorschach test. Every throw, if you're optimistic and hoping he gets better and hoping he can one day be the guy, you look at it glasses half full. If the Rorschach test is you already don't like Jordan Love and everything you see is a slight error here, a slight error there, or he could have thrown it a centimeter outside here, or he could have hit this guy more in stride, this guy had to shift his hips, you can break down every throw and find some nuance, some minutia where maybe it could have been a little better. But I'm convinced at this point that for a certain group of fans, there's nothing Jordan Love could do that's ever going to change their opinion about him. They are always going to not like Jordan Love. I don't know why that is, but that group of fans will never be won over. Jordan Love could throw in against the Chargers this weekend. He could throw for 350 yards and four touchdowns and no picks and have a completion percentage of 75%. And instead of giving him credit, they'll say, oh, his offensive line was better. Or his receivers were making those plays. Jordan Love wasn't making those plays. The receivers were making the plays. I've seen a lot of that conversation on Twitter or Facebook. The two touchdown passes on Sunday against the Steelers were high-level throws. The one to Jaden Reed, that was an Aaron Rodgers-level throw. 35 yards out, dropped it in the bucket, double coverage, over the shoulder, in his breadbasket, where nobody else could get it other than Jaden Reed. That might be the best throw of Jordan Love's career, or at least his best throw this year. And still, that group of fans that just think that he's not the guy that don't like him for whatever reason are going to tell you, oh, that was Jaden Reed. Jaden Reed made that play. So for 10% of whatever or however big that group is, hopefully it's not 10%, 5%, that part of the fan base, nothing Jordan Love does will ever be good enough. Even if he gets this turned around toward the end of the year and he's very good next year and they make the playoffs next year, and then if he has a bad playoff game, well, I told you. See, I told you. Nothing short of a Super Bowl or a Super Bowl and a Super Bowl MVP. And even then, I don't know if he'll win that group over. But Sunday was his best throwing downfield game without question and one of the major knocks on Love, which I have even talked about, even as I am optimistic and rooting for Jordan Love. I have acknowledged several times on this podcast and on the air on the B93 Morning Show that the deep ball is a concern. It has not been accurate a lot of the year. The accuracy in general, specifically the deep ball accuracy, is a concern. If you watch that whole game on Sunday, the deep ball accuracy was as good as it's been in any game. The raw numbers, again, and the box score scouts are going to say, well, he won 21 for 40, and he completed 52% of his passes, and he threw two picks. Okay. Well, if you're just going to look at the box score and that's going to be your only rationale for saying one thing or another about Jordan Love, I don't know what to tell you. If you watch that whole game through, it was clearly one of his better games. And even though he had the two touchdown, two picks, and the completion percentage was just a little over 50%, you could make a case that Sunday's game was better than the three touchdown, no pick game against Chicago in week one, was better than the three touchdown, no pick game in Atlanta in week two. Even though the quarterback rating and the completion percentage and all that stuff is not going to be as good as those two games, if you watched all the games this year all the way through, 
This was probably his best performance. The throw to Jaden Reed, I was talking about someone on or going back and forth with somebody on Facebook about this on Sunday night. On the final drive, the throw that started that drive to Jaden Reed was perfectly thrown. He threw him to open field. He knew where Jaden Reed was, and yeah, he was under duress and he chucked it, but he put it in a spot where really only Jaden Reed could go and get it. If Aaron Rodgers makes that kind of a throw, that group of fans that hates Jordan Love would say, oh, what a throw. Oh, man, what vision. Incredible. Poised to stay in the pocket. Tremendous downfield vision. He threw it to the only spot that only Jaden Reed could get it. That's a Hall of Fame level throw. And in this case, when I was going back and forth with this person on Facebook, oh, he just chucked it up there and Jaden Reed made that play. He threw it to the only spot that Jaden Reed could get it, and he did. And they got inside the 40-yard line. Now, the two interceptions, one of them, the final pick, I don't know what you want him to do there. I don't know that there's any quarterback in the league with the way Pittsburgh was set up defensively on that final play. What were they, inside the 15-yard line? And Pittsburgh put seven men basically playing Red Rover right on the goal line. With the way that they ran offense on that play, I don't know if there's a quarterback in the league that is not going to throw an interception or at the very least get that pass knocked down. They might have been better served just to throw a quick wide receiver screen with two blockers and just see what happens. See if you can get a block here, a block there. Maybe somebody misses a tackle and you can stretch out over the end zone. That play design was ill-fated in my mind even before the snap happened. That one I don't put so much on him. The pick before that on the second-to-last drive where he was trying to find Christian Watson, it was a bit of an underthrow, and it was a force. I understand going for it. Watson is supposed to be your number one wide receiver. It was one-on-one coverage. The throw was a little bit behind him. Hey, by the way, Patrick Peterson on coverage there, he's been doing this in the league for a long time. He is a very good cornerback. Even if you make the perfect throw, sometimes an elite or a good cornerback is going to make a play on that ball. He made an excellent play to tip that, and it happened that the safety was there to help cover things up, and it landed right in his stomach. That's a throw that you would maybe prefer him not to even attempt because it was only second down and there was no real reason to force it there in a situation where not a lot of good could happen and some bad could happen and we saw the bad. That's what I would take away from that play. Why even try to make that throw on second down? If it's third down or if it's fourth down and it's your last down and you've got to make something happen, I understand it more. On second down, I don't love the decision. There's going to be up and down with Jordan Love, and that was a part of it. It's a shame because his game before that (laughs) – if before those two picks, if they would have found a way to score on that drive, either well, I guess they would have needed a field or they would have needed a touchdown. And he was able to keep his nose clean and had a two touchdown no pick game or a three touchdown no pick game. His game statistically for the stat heroes out there that only want to look at the final box score and determine whether or not Jordan Love is good. Before that pick on the attempted Christian Watson, he was having a QBR day in the 80s, a quarterback rating day well over 100. It's a shame it ended the way that it did with those two picks on the final two drives because not only did it deep six the game, it also submarined his rating and his QBR and all that stuff on the day too. Overall, though, a lot to like about the way Jordan Love looked on Sunday. He looked a lot better on Sunday than he did against Vegas when he just appeared to be overthinking everything and seeing ghosts out there. There was real concern about him coming out of that game and the Denver game to some extent and the Minnesota game. We saw progress against the Rams last week with a quarterback rating of over 100. Didn't hear anybody complaining about it a week ago. All the stat people that were going nuts about his quarterback rating and his completion percentages this past Sunday didn't hear a peep from them last week when he completed 75 or 78% of his passes and had a quarterback rating of 115. He showed progress against L.A. in a win, and in my mind, even though you have the two picks and the low quarterback rating, he showed even more progress, especially on the deep ball on Sunday. 
But for a segment of this Packer fan base on Twitter or Facebook, I'm not sure there's anything Jordan Jordan Love could throw 20 touchdowns and no picks for the remainder of this season, and they go on a six-game winning streak, and they make the playoffs somehow. Even that won't be enough for them. They are convinced he's not the guy, and they will not hear otherwise. But I think you like that. You like the blocking being better and Love looking better, especially on the deep ball on Sunday. Defensively, I didn't mind Ballantyne in the secondary filling in for Jair. You didn't have Jair. You didn't have Quay Walker. I wonder what the run game for the Steelers would have looked like had Quay Walker played one of your better tacklers on the field. It is confounding that this Packer defense, the eighth-ranked defense in the league, not sure what they are coming out of Sunday. We discussed that on Friday's podcast. Going into the weekend, the eighth-ranked defense in the league, despite having really not played anybody. That's a big reason they were ranked number eight. The Steeler offense is not good. The Steeler rush game was 25th in the league at 90 yards per game going into Sunday, and we've been over ad nauseum the Packer rush defense issues. Well, against the 25th-ranked rush offense that is averaging 90 yards on the ground a game, the Packers gave up 205 yards on 5.7 yards per carry, two touchdowns on 36 attempts. The most infuriating part of that is Kenny Pickett is not a good quarterback. He is worse than Jordan Love. And if you think Jordan Love is bad, Pickett's even worse. So you know going into this game, the Steelers have one thing they can do on offense. That is run the football. Make Kenny Pickett beat you. At all costs, make Kenny Pickett beat you. Jordan Love's QBR ended up being okay at at 72. QBR is a different stat than quarterback rating. QBR is more win probability. Kenny Pickett's QBR was 24 on Sunday with the way he played. That means he would win the game 24% of the time with the way he played. And you knew that going in that they have no real aerial attack to speak of. And still... They were able to rush for over 200 yards and almost six yards of carrying two touchdowns. That was maddening. But I did like some of the things in that secondary with Valentine. I got to get my Valentine and Valentines correct here. Carrington Valentine again, fairly solid yesterday. And and Valentine, Corey Valentine, who came over from the Giants, I want to say, a year or two ago. I thought he held his own as well with Jair out. And you're on your what now? Fourth and fifth string cornerbacks, all the injuries that you've had there. Things in the wide receiving core to like. Jaden Reed looks like he's a guy. Five catches, 84 yards, and a touchdown. When you look at the rookie wide receiver stat lines, he's up there at the top of it. A lot of people wanted Jackson, Smith, and Jigba to be drafted by the Packers in the first round. He has had a rough year in Seattle. Reed has basically doubled that guy's numbers. Luke Musgrave finally caught a pass down the middle and didn't completely fall over. He stumbled, but he didn't fall. Two catches, 64 yards. He's developing. Dontavian Wicks, a lot to like there. Three catches, 51 yards. Dobbs had that touchdown catch at the beginning of the game on the opening drive that looked exactly like the Greg Jennings Super Bowl play when Rodgers hit Jennings on that same kind of route. That was also right on the mark from Love, and he had to float that one over the top and hit Dobbs in that corner where Dobbs could still get his feet down, and he did. Three catches, 31 yards, and a touchdown. Six touchdown catches now in the year for Dobbs. Watson continues to be a source of anger among Packer fans. He had those two catches early on the opening drive. Two catches, 23 yards. He was done after that. He was the targeted wide receiver on both interceptions, and I believe Love now six of his ten picks on the year, seven of his ten picks on the year are on Christian Watson targets. I saw Christian Watson's dad defending him on Twitter. And for the life of me, I don't know. I don't have kids, so I don't know what it would be like to have an NFL wide receiver as a son. <laughs> I'm so far removed from that world. I don't know what that would be like. 
I never understand from an outsider perspective, I never understand why parents and brothers and sisters and relatives mix it up with fans of a team that their kid plays for on Twitter. Nobody wins there ultimately. And if I were the player, I would think I would say, please just stop doing this. It's only making things worse. Just be quiet. If everyone is just quiet, it's probably better. Then again, like I said, I don't know what it's like to have a relative playing in the NFL and to read some of the stuff that's said about them on social media. It is angering, at least at the very least, and the reaction is probably to respond. So I don't know what that's like. But his dad did put up a stat line, a snapshot of Devontae Adams' first two years in Green Bay, which were not good. And a lot of Packer fans, if you go back to tweets and posts from his second year and even his third year at some points early in that year, get rid of him. Get rid of him. This guy's a bust. He's not good. He can't hang on to the ball. And a year after that, he begins a run of seasons where he is now considered, or at least was considered up to last year maybe, the best wide receiver in football. That was Christian Watson's dad's argument of just stick with him, okay? He's not getting everything. Some of the throws aren't perfect. The play design isn't perfect. Not everything is perfect. He hopefully will get it together and have a similar situation where at some point it's going to snap together and he's going to break out. I understand the argument he was making. Devontae was a number three on those teams, though, and Watson is expected to be the number one. Maybe those are too high of expectations to have on a second-round pick from last year even though we saw flashes of him potentially being a number one last season when he got healthy and Rodgers was out there. I saw that on Twitter, so he had kind of a tough game again, and because the picks were on targets to Watson, it just fuels that narrative of he doesn't fight for the football and he's not a number one. Aaron Jones had a bad day, and they fall to what now, 36-3? and He did get 15 touches. He had 13 carries and four catches, 17 touches. They are now 36-3 and when he has 15 or more touches. He had a rough day, though. 13 runs for 35 yards, 2.7 yards a carry. On that on that uh, special play or the specialty play where they – a trick play where they ran to Dontavian Wicks, loved threw it to Wicks on the far side, then Wicks threw it back across the field to Jones. It looked like that was set up for a big gain. That pass hit Jones right in the gut, and for some reason he couldn't hang on to it. The most egregious error from Jones on the day, though, was on the final drive. With no timeouts and the time ticking down, he catches that pass and needs to get out of bounds immediately because that play was going nowhere. He cuts it back up the field for some reason to the middle of the field. He picked up a yard, and it cost them 30 seconds in a game where you had under a minute with no timeouts. Just not a very smart play. Matt LaFleur did talk about that after the game. Just not a good game by Aaron Jones, and unfortunately for Aaron Jones... They are at a spot right now as the youngest team in the league that makes a lot of mistakes. Aaron Jones has to be perfect, and that's a lot to ask. He is the most dynamic player on this team. He is the most potent offensive weapon on this team. When he is out there, and especially when they're finally giving him the ball, 15-plus touches again on Sunday, unfortunately for him, he needs to be perfect for this team to win, and he was not on Sunday, and that error at the end really cost them. I don't know if they end up winning that game or not, if he just gets out of bounds, though, you probably are able to run two, maybe three more plays than you had been with the way things played out at the end of the game on that final drive. Just a tough game for Aaron Jones. Overall, a 23-19 loss. The missed extra point cost him the cover, of course. As soon as that kick was blocked, I said out loud, that's going to cost him the cover. Three and a half. It was so obvious. Never in the history of gambling on football has a missed extra point not impacted some final spread, whether it's the game spread, the total points, something like that. Every single time an extra point is missed or blocked, that is going to impact a game in some way on over total over-under points or on the spread itself, and it cost them the spread. 
It was a three and a half point spread. They lose by four. How does Vegas get it right every time? Packers fall to three and six with the loss. Right now, they would have the sixth overall pick in the draft. Hey, we talked about this a few weeks ago. For some of you out there, this is the ideal situation. They went on the road against a five and three team in a tough place to play. They played a competitive game. They played a game they could have won and maybe should have won. They showed growth across the board pretty much with their young players, and they lost and enhanced their draft stock. That is the perfect storm for many Packer fans out there. They would be the number six overall pick in the upcoming draft. And now you do start a run of games where you could see them going three and nine now. They have the Chargers at Lambeau on Sunday. I am petrified of what that offense is going to do to a Joe Barry defense. Still a top 10 defense, maybe? Probably won't be coming out of Sunday. Now, the Chargers the Chargers and Lions, we'll do an NFL recap here in a second. That was quite a game. It ends with the Lions winning 41-38. Lions have a good offense, but they did prove you can score on this Chargers team. We hope we see more progress from Love and the offense and the young wide receivers, and the offensive line can build on some of the better blocking we saw on Sunday, and they can put some points on the board. I just think it's very unlikely that Joe Barry's defense is going to be able to keep L.A. under 30 on Sunday. Then you go to Detroit on Thanksgiving Day. It used to be that you loved when the Packers were on Thanksgiving Day. I don't know that there's any chance they win in Detroit. Probably not. And then you've got Kansas City and Mahomes and Taylor Swift probably at Lambeau Field on Sunday, December 3rd. That also feels like a likely loss. You may be 3-9 and nine and a top five pick before they enter that Monday night game, December 11th at New York against the Giants as a winnable game. And then they have a few winnable games, Tampa at home, at Carolina, maybe Chicago at home to end the year. They could, I can still see them getting to six, seven wins maybe. But there's a pretty good chance. There's a real chance they're going to be 3-9 and nine heading into that Monday night game against the Giants in New York. We'll see. Overall, I, there was, in my mind, a lot to like about Sunday. Maybe a lot more to like than not. I felt really down in the dumps after the Vegas loss and the Denver loss and the Minnesota loss. Now we've had back-to-back weeks where they go 1-1, one and one, and I think we saw progress across the board from some of the younger players on this team, and that's what you're looking for. Run through the NFL real quick. Just a stink bomb in Germany. Jeez, God, I don't know why we insist on doing all of these international games. 10 to 6, the Colts over the Patriots. 10 to 6. That's growing the game. I'm sure everybody leaving that game in Frankfurt felt, oh, I can't wait to watch more NFL after that. The Texans, my Texans future bet in the AFC South, I got it at plus 860. It looked like it was wavering because the Texans were 500, and it appeared as though the Jaguars were getting it together. Well, the Texans get a win in Cincinnati, 30-27. to C.J. Stroud is the clear offensive rookie of the year, and he may be working himself into the MVP conversation. He's not going to win it. He is probably top 10 or right at number 10 odds-wise, though, right now with the way he's playing. They get to 5-4, and four, and the Jaguars get stomped at home 34-3. They fall to 6-3. and three. Texans are only a game back, and they have a win over the Jaguars this year, and they play again before the season is out. My NFC South Futures bet on the Saints took a bit of a hit on Sunday as Josh Dobbs got it done for the Vikings. How about the Vikings? 1-4, Kirk Cousins out for the year. They bring in Dobbs, couple of wins back-to-back weeks. They've won five in a row, and they are a playoff team now at 6-4. Saints fall to 5-5. Five and five. They lose Derek Carr. Jameis Winston came in, and it was the Jameis Winston experience. He did not skip a beat. Two touchdowns, two picks, and a half of football. That is the Jameis Winston experience. I don't know how I feel about that going forward. Luckily, the Falcons did lose. Where did the Falcons lose? 
in Arizona as Kyler Murray returned, 25-23. That means my Saints still have a game lead over both the Falcons and the Buccaneers in the NFC South. They are still the clubhouse leaders right now. I have the future on them to win that division. Not a great loss for them, and now you wonder what the quarterback spot looks like for the Saints going forward. Buccaneers did beat the Titans 20-6. The Browns rallied. Ravens were up big early, 17-3 after the first quarter, and Deshaun Watson, whose numbers in the first half were putrid, he got it together, and he just massaged the game in the right direction, and they end up getting a 33-31 to win. That is one I did not see coming in Baltimore, and there's just so many double entendres here. <laughs> In Baltimore, with the Ravens going into the weekend, building steam as a Super Bowl favorite, and Lamar Jackson building steam as an MVP candidate would be a second MVP. They were up 17-3 to at the end of one. The Browns' offense looked hapless. All of a sudden, they get it together, and they win 33-31. That division is a mess. As I said, the Cardinals beat the Falcons. Lions got the barn burner win over the Chargers. They are 7-2. Are the Lions the number two team? I'll have to click on standings here. Giants get boat raced in Dallas, 49-17. Seahawks escape against the Commanders. They're 6-3, 29-27. And the Raiders covered. The Raiders covered on Sunday. We had them to cover at minus one. They beat the Jets 16-12. They were down 9-3 early in that game. Come back to win behind Antonio Pierce. Interim coach spurt. 16 to 12 winners on Sunday night football on NBC. Are the Lions the number two seed in the NFC right now? I bet they are. Are they the number one? No, Eagles are eight and one. Eagles are eight and one. Lions are seven and two. Yeah, the Lions are the two seed right now in the NFC. That is a wrap after tonight. Who is the Monday night game? Denver at Buffalo. We'll get the Rasul Douglas debut in Buffalo. 7-15 kickoff tonight to wrap up NFL week nine. Let's talk about Badger football. I did not see that one. I did not see at any point. I talked on the air this morning about how it became apparent early this year in year one of Luke Fickle. It was pretty obvious probably after the Washington State loss that the talent level is not quite where we thought it was with the blend of the Chris players and some new Fickle players and the transfer portal and the four and five star guys. We all got hyped up. We saw the soft schedule. We had delusions of grandeur. We know that now. It was pretty obvious by week two or three. Even with that, at no point, at no point, did I think we would be talking about losses at Indiana and double-digit home losses to Northwestern and maybe not even being bowl eligible. I would never have guessed that even week five. I never would have guessed that coming out of the Ohio State game. Coming out of the Ohio State game, I actually felt kind of good where they only lost that game by 14, and it was a touchdown game in the fourth quarter against the number one ranked team in the country. Since then, it has just been a Thelma and Louise drive off a cliff, and I don't know what what's going on. At the end of the game on Saturday, Tanner Mordecai even came back. I was texting my buddies. We said on Friday's podcast, the, the game spread made no sense to me, given the way the Badgers have played, how frisky Northwestern has been. The Badgers being 11-point favorites was odd. I did say in that podcast, though, maybe if Mordecai and Braylon Allen are back, that would seem to indicate why the spread is where it is. Well, on Saturday, Mordecai warmed up, and it was announced he was the starter. It was announced Braylon Allen would play. Now, Allen only lasted two drives before it was clear he could not go. He had three carries for three yards, and that was it. But you get your fifth-year starting quarterback back, and you're at home against Northwestern. You would think that would have been enough to get a win. Maybe not a cover, but a win. And to not only lose, but to just get stomped, get bullied, get 
rushed around by this Northwestern team that does not have near the talent that the Badgers do. It's disheartening. After the game, Tanner Mordecai and Hunter Walder, you would, I think, put them both as leaders on this team, even though Mordecai is the transfer and he's just here for the year. Waller's been here now for three years, arguably their best player overall, and I would say absolutely their best player on defense, and a Wisconsin guy. He went off in the postgame about the players and the buy-in. I'm going to play you a 60-second clip. This was a four-minute rant that he went on where he called the team soft. They're not physical. They're not prepared. They're not doing things the coaches are asking them. The question that a reporter asked him was, is this on the coaches or is this on the players? And that's a point we're going to get more into here in a second. But this is what Hunter Waller had to say. Accurate? Yeah. Yeah. There's no there's no perfect call. There's no perfect um, assignment. No, Nothing that the coaches could have done differently tonight that would have made us win that game. I mean, we played horribly. We were flat. We had no energy. We couldn't do anything on either side of the ball. Um, 100% it's on the players. And I don't I, I don't blame Coach Fickle. I don't blame Coach Tress. I don't I don't blame the coaches for what happened today, what happened last week. I mean, we just, we're not good enough right now, and we have to find a way to get that right. Uh, along those lines, coaching changes like this can be tough. Do you get the sense that this is a locker room that's bought into to what these guys are trying to do? Um, you know, I think... That's a tough question. That's a no. I think there's some people that are bought in, and we need to get everybody. This game doesn't happen with one or two people. It happens with a full team, whether you play, whether you start on Saturdays, or whether you're running scout team during the week. It takes everybody. And clearly, we don't have everyone on the same page. Um, so I don't blame the coaches again. I, I, there's nothing that the coaches could have done to fix what happened today. Okay, so it's the players, according to the best player on the team, and I will take his word for that, and that's where the blame belongs because that's the question. Is this on the players or is this on the coaching staff? If it's on the players, as Waller says, that's best-case scenario as a Badger fan because you can replace players. You can bring in new players in the transfer portal and the NIL era. If Luke Fickle wanted to, he could probably bring in an entire different team next year. If it were on the coaches, which, again, Hunter Waller basically says it is not, but if it were, that is a far more concerning situation I have seen, as you would expect, with the way they played, especially at home against bad teams, I have seen confidence start to waver in Luke Fickle where at the beginning of the year, everybody was confident this was the guy. He was going to get them back to the promised land. He was going to get them in the college football playoff conversation. He was going to get them in the national championship conversation. I don't know if I still feel that way. (laughs) Can he get them back to being a 9 or 10 win team? Absolutely With an expanded college football playoff, could they be in the running for that in the next three to four years? Yes. I still think Fickle is the guy. But if this were more on coaching than on the players that they currently have in the locker room, that would be a much, much bigger problem. This does appear to be a player issue. I know last week we said it's no longer an excuse to say they're Chris guys. I may go back to that. I may renege on that based on the comments that Hunter Waller made at the end of the game. Because I don't think Luke Fickle has a locker room. And I don't mean that, that that he should be fired or, you know, you hear a coach loses the locker room. The next logical step in your brain is that guy's probably got to have a meeting with the Bobs and he probably has to go. 
I don't think it works that way with the way this current situation is set up. You've got the new coach in the locker room. You've got probably 70% of the guys in the locker room were Chris recruits or Jim Leonard recruits, and this team has looked especially shoddy on defense. It's possible that there are players, especially on defense, that are saying, I came here to play for Jim Leonard. I didn't come here to play for Mike Tressel, and I don't believe in what Tressel is doing, and they're just going through the motions. And in the NIL era where a lot of these players are getting paid, which is a good thing, but it's a new era in college football, and where these guys are getting more money now, at least on the books, as opposed to off the books, it's going to be maybe different motivational tactics for coaches. I just don't know, based on those comments, that Fickle and this coaching staff have the locker room. They can change that with a recruiting cycle, and they will change that with a recruiting cycle. I would think at this point, given the way this season has gone, you're going to see a lot of guys not back, especially Chris recruits and Leonard recruits, that are not going to be back next year. They're going to hit the transfer portal again. And we are now at a spot where I think legitimately we're looking at three to five years. We use the road trip analogy all podcast long. We have definitely, we def, what was the thing we had last week? We pooped our pants. We had to start over. We went home and started over. Yeah, that's where we're at right now. We started the road trip. We were finally on the road. We pooped our pants. We're in the shower right now. We're, we threw our clothes in the laundry. We threw them in the trash. Those are a goner. Those pants are a goner. And we're in the shower contemplating where it all went wrong. Sadly, I have a very intimate knowledge of this analogy. I've lived this analogy, so I know exactly how dark this analogy is. And now you just have to reset. We have to reset the timeline. We were all hopeful that this team was still some version of the 2017 Chris Badgers, the 2018 or the 2019 team that made the Rose Bowl. Clearly the final recruiting class or two for Chris was subpar. And of those subpar recruiting classes, not all of them are bought into this new head coach and the new defensive coordinator and the new offensive system. And this is going to take an entire restructure, a burn it to the ground and build it back up. You hope in three-ish years they can get back to winning nine games, ten games, and playing in more entertaining bowl games or maybe on the fringe of the college football playoff conversation. This is a much larger rescale or scale of a rebuild than we thought it was going to be at any point in this year. There's a real chance they don't play in a bowl game. They are favored somehow against Nebraska. They are favored by five points heading into Nebraska. It's going to be senior day. I would hope with those comments, those very loud comments by both Mordecai. I think Mordecai's quote was, we're going to find out who has a give a bleep factor. (laughs) That was his quote. We're going to find out the next two weeks who gives a bleep. It's a give a bleep factor. Based on his comments and the Waller comments, maybe that ignites the locker room. Maybe that wakes some players up and they go out there and they battle and are focused and are given 110% against Nebraska. If they don't win this game against Nebraska, it feels really far-fetched to me that they'd go on the road in a rivalry game. If if that amount of players are already mentally checked out and don't care about the program anymore, they don't care about the acts then or the battle for the acts the way alumni do or the way fans do, if they don't beat Nebraska, there is a real chance this team is not going to be bowling this year, and that would break up, what, a streak of 20 straight years or 20-plus, two decades-plus of making a bowl game. They need one win in their final two games to get that done. And, yes, they are favored. I don't know how or why. They are favored against Nebraska, five points heading into Saturday's matchup. Just never saw this coming. You could have seen a letdown year. At the beginning of the year, I would have told you a letdown year was 9-3, and three, given the schedule. I would have told you a letdown year is 8-4. and four. We are staring down the barrel now of a 5-7 and seven season, potentially. At best, 7-5, and five, likely 6-6. Six and six. Maybe you get a bowl. 
And that's where we're at right now. But this coaching staff and the recruiters and all that stuff, they have a lot of things they need to work out and clear out of the locker room. Waller went on to say, if if you play the full nine-minute interview, he essentially said some players have to go. And he apologized. I'm sorry to say that. But some of these guys, some of these players, if they're not up to it, if they're not going to dig deep for these final two games and these final two weeks of practice, then they've got to go. And that's where we're at right now with Patrick football. Not a good spot at 5-5. Five and five. Talk real quickly about the Bucs. Speaking of not a good spot, defense looks real rough. After the loss against Indiana on Thursday, they go to Orlando on Saturday. Again, no Dame Lillard. Second straight game without Dame. Dame should play tonight, it sounds like, in Chicago. The defense is just scrambling. I watched the second half. I had to call a college game. And then I got home by halftime. They were already down by 14 or 15 points. I watched the entire second half. They just look like they're on skates right now. They don't know where their defensive assignments are. You've got guys scrambling all over the floor. And any team with decent ball movement has this team right now, a sea of motion, and it all leads to open shots basically across the board. I did see a stat that in the Pacers game, the Pacers attempted 48 threes in that game. And the stat that I saw had 46 of them as regarded as open, open looks. 46 of 48 open looks from three. Not great, Bob. I would say it didn't look a whole lot better on Saturday to the point where Adrian Griffin just put in his deep bench players. The Nasus got some run at the end of that game. The rookie Andre Walker got into the game, and they asked Grip about that post game, and he basically said, I was just looking for some energy. It kind of felt like an indirect shot maybe to some of the guys that were on the floor, like Brooke or guys like that. And we all love Brooke Lopez. He seems to be the number one piece of angst that Bucks fans have on Twitter right now. He looked good in that eight-block game when they adjusted to more of that drop defense. I forget what game that was. It hasn't looked that good since. And he seems to be the target right now for Bucks Twitter for this team's shortcomings early, especially defensively. All of the ire is targeted at Brooke Lopez in his 7-1 frame. Uh, Griffin said, I was just looking for guys that could bring some kind of energy to match the Orlando energy, essentially saying his starters or his top eight guys were not bringing the energy on Saturday. Bucks Twitter is in shambles, like you would expect, nine games in, uh, championship expectations this year where you get Dame Lillard, they're five and four through nine games. You got to give them more time. There are plenty of Bucks writers and podcasters that I saw on Twitter. They want Griffin fired now. They just think he, it's the Jordan Love factor. They just, I don't know what it is. What is it about sports? where a certain group of fans are in a full sprint, are in such a rush to write guys off, to write coaches off, to write players off. Is it a need to be right about something? Is that what it boils down to, that you want to be right and say, I told you so? Is that what it? Is that the end game there? I do not understand it. The Warriors are sitting at 6-5. and five. You've got a bunch of teams that are hovering around 500. The Suns, who before the Bucks got Dame Lillard, the Suns acquired Bradley Beal, and that was one of the biggest moves of the offseason, that and Porzingis to Boston. They are at 500. They may even be a game below 500, and they've got Frank Vogel as their first-year head coach, his first year in Phoenix. He won the title, if you call it that, in the in the bubble with L.A., and he had many years in Indiana before that. Are they getting set to fire Frank Vogel because they're sitting at 5-5 five and five or 5-6 five and six through 11 games with Durant and Beal and Booker as their big three? It's so early in the year. You've got to see the long game. This is like the Seinfeld episode where Kramer wants to steal the delicatessen packets from from Putumayo or whatever that is. Elaine never sees the long game, does she? We've got to look at the long game here a little bit. If we are 60 games into the year, if this doesn't look any better better by mid to late February, then I would concede there are real concerns about whether or not Adrian Griffin should be the head coach of a championship caliber team in his first year. Let's not forget the Celtics. 
in Missoula's first year last year had a rough start to their season. And in the first year of Ime Udoka's year, where they ended up making the finals, they started the year 18-21. and 21. The examples are almost limitless of teams in the NBA that start 20-20 and 20 or sub-500 through 40 games, end up turning it on and making a run toward a title. It happens almost every single year. I get that things haven't looked smooth. I get that we haven't seen a ton of defensive improvement in nine games. You got to give the guy 50 games. You got to give him 60 games to try to get this figured out, get his system implemented, get the players comfortable with it and buying in. And we'll see where we're at in February or March. If things are still horrible and they're giving up 120 plus points a game and they're sitting at 30 and 30 through 60 games or 31 and 29, then to me there might be some real cause for concern. It is far too early for that. The Bucks are in Chicago tonight to take on the Bulls. What is the tip time on that? We also have the, as I said off the top, we have the Craig Council Cubs introductory press conference today. That's what we needed today. The Bulls, oh, it's at Fiserv. I thought they were in Chicago. It's at Fiserv. 7 o'clock tip time at Fiserv Forum tonight. Bucks are nine-and-a-half-point favorites. We'll see what the Brewers do. You would imagine they want to hire somebody this week, right, to take council spot. In my mind, the clubhouse leader is probably Pat Murphy. I've seen some Don Mattingly conversation. We've discussed this. Murphy brings them stability. He's been with council, I think, his entire run in Milwaukee. He has the bench coach. He has history as a major league coach. Here's the thing. This team is headed for a soft rebuild. It would stun me if Corbin Burns is on this team opening day. It would stun me if Willie Adamas is on this team opening day. They may even trade Devin, which I'm fine with, and they might trade Freddie, even though Freddie is a solid pitcher and they have him at a club-friendly contract. If the offer is there, if somebody's offering you a high-level prospect for him, you've got to entertain it right now. This team is headed for probably a year or two where they're going to win 70-ish games. And I hate to say it, but it's probably true. In baseball, I guess you never know. Sometimes teams that are going through a rebuild overachieve. The Brewers in 2017 are a great example. That rebuild started at the end of 2015. It was a down year, a 70 or 72 win year in 2016, and we were expecting another 70-ish win year in 2017. That team came out and won 85 games with a roster that did not have a ton of talent. They had the right chemistry, though, and they overachieved. You never know in baseball. The likelihood is that this year and next year are not going to be playoff seasons and they're going to be 70-ish win years, maybe 80, maybe get to 500 on the high end. So I don't know that it matters a ton who the manager is as long as the clubhouse likes this manager and as long as this manager can develop younger talent, which I think Pat Murphy probably can given his history in baseball. They're going to give whatever manager is hired a two-year deal with an option for a third year in case things go really well where the club can pick up that option if things are going right and say, okay, we're going to keep this guy a little longer. It's going to be a very cheap contract, which Mark Atanasio will love. It'll be a two-year, $6 million deal or two-year, $5 million deal where he's paying less than three mil for a manager. That'll really warm his heart. And if it doesn't work out, that's fine. In all likelihood, this team is not going to be playoff competitive again or title competitive again until 2025 or 2026. And by then, you'll probably have a new manager unless this one overachieves and works out. That's why I'm not overly concerned about it, and I think that the most logical and stable move is to just hire Pat Murphy, and I think that's likely what they'll do. We'll see what they make a call this week, though. We'll come back on Friday. We'll set you up for Packers and Chargers, for Badgers and Nebraska. We'll see what the Bucks did this week, except for more college hoops. Marquette's got a big one on Tuesday. Number five Marquette. They'll probably move up to number three this week. They are at number 25 Illinois, although I think that might be a neutral site game. That might be a tip-off tournament type deal. And the Badgers have Providence tomorrow as well. That's a tough matchup on the road. 
We'll recap some college hoops on Friday as well as make our picks as we are now sitting at 31-23-2 against the spread. We'll chat with you then. Have a good work week.